Yes, American exceptionalism is a well-worn theory among historians, political scientists, those interested in foreign affairs, remembering Madeleine Albright's, you know, America the indispensable nation just before the Iraq war. It's a term you often hear in political speech, referring to America's unique history and values and society. But where the term came from and what it means exactly hasn't been closely examined until now. Professor Ian Tyrrell is an Australian professor of American history from the University of New South Wales, and he set this right with his new book, American Exceptionalism, A New Idea, A New History of an Old Idea. It's a demanding read, but well worth it for those interested in gaining a deeper understanding of America's understanding of itself and its place in the world. Thank you for joining me, Ian. Thank you very much, Geraldine. Interesting that an Australian tackled this, Ian. Well, I think Australia and the United States in some ways is very alike. And so the first thing that comes out of that, well, what is exceptional about America if there are similar things going on in Australia? I think we're um, quite different, you see. I don't think we're the same, but I think that superficially it looks like we're, superficially, we're similar. Superficially, yes. When you do a comparison, we're different. But comparison wouldn't lead us to exceptionalism in any case because the United States has to be compared with all other countries in order to prove that it's exceptional. Well, maybe you should define the concept of American exceptionalism as it's currently understood. And what we'll find is that it moves around a lot. Currently, it, it is really about American leadership in the world. America somehow still have a sense of destiny about itself that uh, is maybe from God, but maybe just from the historical process itself. And that the United States is not merely unique but that it is different in a fundamental way, that it is above other countries, it is above the normal course of human history, that it is outside of that normal pattern of human history. That's their the current their think view. That's of right. what, it, what it is. Madeleine Albright said that America could see further than other, other countries. We see further than other peoples do. That implies that the United States is above the rest of his human well, history. Well, that's certainly how it has appeared to me. Uh, that that's their perception, I think, yes, of it. And yes. entry. But you say that it actually wasn't particularly well understood broadly. Might have been among academics until comments made by President Barack Obama in two thousand and nine in Strasbourg, which were interpreted incorrectly to suggest that he did not subscribe to the theory. So that's look, this right. is more complicated than that's you think. right. I mean, the, the idea then became a kind of political point, a political talking point that the Republican Party could exploit, that Obama was not an exceptionalist. He didn't believe in the United States as being better than other countries, that it was just an ordinary everyday country like other countries are. And that developed into a kind of Republican campaign, which in the 2012 presidential election had the words American exceptionalism emblazoned in the platform of the Republican Party. And yet... Um, American exceptionalism, as I understand it, was disavowed by Donald Trump, despite his Make America Great Against Exactly. And actually, this is one of uh, the, the great insights of Donald Trump, and he didn't have very many. He said that he didn't like the term American exceptionalism. He didn't really believe in American exceptionalism. He believed in American greatness. Greatness is different from exceptionalism. Many countries have been great in world history, but according to American exceptionalism, only the United States has been exceptional. There's a fundamental distinction there. Greatness is about quantitative differences when you really get down to it. 
Trump was really thinking about the capacity of the United States to beat other countries and be number one so that when Americans... It's a competitive thing. Yes, it's a very competitive thing. By the same token, people who chant number one, USA, number one, for example, as, for example, when Osama bin Laden was killed, that's really an affirmation of that number one place in world history that Americans think that their country has and should keep. But we must be careful here. We've got to be specific. It You don't equate American exceptionalism with the concepts of the American dream, the American way, or the American creed. Now, why are these concepts not interchangeable? Because they're not really grounded in an an interpretation of history as American exceptionalism is. American exceptionalism is grounded in the idea that the nation was founded exceptional and that it has always been exceptional. The American dream has been kind of appropriated as a term which reflects a desire for Americans to have a good standard of living and to be able to own a home, for example, to get ahead in business. These are all themes that feed into American exceptionalism, but they're not the essence of exceptionalism, which must revolve around the idea of chosenness. Let's go back to the history of the term then. When did the idea of exceptionalism start? What were the circumstances? Well, the the very first use of the term that we know was in 1861 during the American Civil War when the, the British correspondent for the London Times talked about American exceptionalism. And what he really meant by that was that the United States just didn't act like other countries when it came to the um, military matters. The term was not used again to describe the United States as far as we know until the era of Joseph Stalin. It became a term that was a Marxist term, really, to denote how the United States diverged from other capitalist countries. So that was the exceptionalism. So we're talking pre-war, are we? No, we're talking now post... No, you uh, are talking about post-war. We're talking about the 1920s. Oh, I see, post-World War I. Yeah, yeah, Stalin. Stalin's Mm. coming through then. Yes, I always think it's a little bit later than that. You find it in in Marxism, you see, because Marxism is about the idea that there's going to be a revolution which will spread throughout the world and all countries are presumably going to go through this class conflict and eventually to a socialist paradise. Now, whereas the Bolsheviks had taken over Russia and formed the Soviet Union, the United States just seemed to have no serious communist or socialist threat facing it in the 1920s. The Communist Party was very small. Well, they basically killed the union movement. (laughs) They killed the union movement as well, the United States really, basically. So that notion came up almost as a pejorative term, American. It did, yeah, it did. But Stalin uh, didn't accept that the United States was exceptional. What he did was he denounced American socialists who proclaimed the idea that the United States' path to socialism would be different. And these people were led by a guy named Jay Lovestone. I call it in the book the Lovestoneite deviation. So it's deviating from what the Comintern says the socialist revolution should undertake. It was meant as a pejorative, but it was taken over by Lovestone and and Bertram Wolfe and others who are later on to be anti-socialists as, yeah, we're great. uh, There'll be a lot of socialist revolutions, but they'll all be different because every country is different. So we are exceptionalists for every country. We're not just for the United States. 
But that didn't enter into academic discourse until the 1940s and 1950s, partly because a lot of Trotskyites and uh, other Marxists, you know, ended up in academia in some way. And they knew about this term American exceptionalism from the 1930s and from Stalin and from Lovestone. They began to use it to describe the United States in the 1950s. Now, I want to move away to the important religious aspect yes. of this, but specifically mm. Christian to mm. exceptionalist ideology. And religious institutions, you say, have played an important role in upholding and promoting the idea. They certainly are today. There's a strong connection between evangelical Christianity and support for these doctrines of America as a kind of chosen nation. It came up again in the 2012 presidential election and in the 2016 to a lesser extent because Trump kind of muffled that. But the religious aspect really goes back to the founding of the colonies in Massachusetts in the 17th century and the idea of a kind of a chosen people. Yes. Okay. With a lot uh, of separation between church and state, right. of course. Well, not in Massachusetts. Oh. Only one colony, and later on a couple of others, had separation of church and state in the 17th and 18th centuries. Most colonies had a religious establishment. And in, in Massachusetts, that was the Congregational Church, just as it was the Anglican Church in Virginia. It wasn't until the revolution that the separation of church and state came about. But the idea of a city on a hill, which was John Winthrop's speech that he gave upon the arrival of the, uh, you know, Pilgrim Fathers, he, um, you know, used this phrase, and this phrase was forgotten for a long time, this, the city on a hill, but it was resurrected in the 20th century, particularly by Ronald Reagan to refer to what the United States was. In other words, the United States had this deep relationship with a sense of destiny and chosenness. Uh, let me just tell listeners, uh, Professor Ian Tyrrell is my guest and he's and his new book is titled American Exceptionalism, A New History of an Old Idea and we're delving down into it. Why hasn't the change, you could argue, the change in material circumstances for the US weakened this idea of exceptionalism? I, I suppose it might have strengthened it in a sort of paradoxical way, but I'm intrigued by that. Well, it does intrigue me too. I, I mean, in, in the early days, exceptionalism became in, fulfilled, as it were. The chosenness seemed to be fulfilled by westward expansion, which obviously involved killing off and removing large numbers of Indigenous people, something that American, is, Americans tended to forget about. As the United States became a world power, that seemed to back it up in material terms. We're seeing well, that... particularly post-World War II. Yeah, post-World well, War II of course, they pretty, were, yeah. they pretty yeah. much were the exceptional power, weren't they? <laughs> They were, yes, obviously they were in material terms. But exceptionalism is not just about material achievement. It's about being different in a non-material way. Well, surely the Marshall Plan was that. Well, the Marshall Plan had, was very, very good geopolitics. It really put the expansion of communism in Europe at bay. But the victors, to, to, such extraordinary behaviour by victors, we don't see an awful lot of that through history. No, we don't. That's one of these cases where you can call the American achievement at that point exceptional, but it's exceptional in relation to what? It's not, it's not in any absolute sense exceptional because the United States has not always been generous to those that it's conquered. So do you, is it a settled term then among scholars and historians? This is a good question. It's certainly a settled term among historians and political scientists and sociologists and all kinds of academics and most general commentators 
have got a sort of vague idea about what it means. They just don't understand the complexities and the contradictions that are involved in it that I have to explore in my work. They more or less take whatever it is they're looking at and determine whether they think that is exceptional or not. I mean, didn't the British Empire think it was exceptional too? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. So this is part of an empire, or imperial attitude. I mean, the Russians do too. In my opinion, yes. In in, in my opinion, it's a very, very important part of the development of, uh, of an American empire and its distinctiveness in the 20th century, but even in the 19th century because of the expansion of the West. What was that but another form of imperial expansion across the American West? So is it that what the Americans seem to do is articulate it? It's, it's a very articulated part, as I read it anyway, of the way they see their it role is, in the world. It but is, but, but often, often using different concepts to describe that. You know, sometimes the American dream, the American way, there are all these things come up, but it's only really been since Obama's time, really, that that the term American exceptionalism has been the one that's been more or less systematically applied to it. I mean, during the COVID crisis, for example, lots of people were arguing about whether the United States was or were not exceptional based on its performance in COVID. It's poor performance. Good or bad. You know, poor performance (laughs) or that, you know, it meant freedom because they weren't locking down. But when you actually look at the statistics, the United States was in the pack. It was never exceptional. Okay, The only exceptional thing about it was that for a time it had the greatest number of deaths Per capita, I don't think it even rates in the top 20 in terms of per capita deaths now. So finally, can we take from what you're saying that exceptionalism will remain a powerful force in US public life or not, given Trump's rather interesting approach to it? I think it will remain an important force. I think it's almost impossible to conceive that it wouldn't. But it does so under increasing pressure from reality, the reality of the need to have allies, the reality of other countries becoming as strong or stronger in various ways, the internal divisions in the United States. I can't see it going away. It's really deeply ingrained. But Often people who are anti-exceptionalists, you know, they they phrase it within that same type of uh, thinking of, is the United States exceptional or other? This, This obsession with deciding whether the United States is or is not exceptional will persist. And the world has to really put up with that because this is the world's most powerful country. And yet at, at, at the top, they're really not sure quite what they stand for and they're really not sure exactly how that they should uh, articulate that and what it means and what they should do about it. Uh, mm. In my opinion, they should just jettison their whole idea entirely. But all peoples need to have an idea of who they are, where they're going and exceptionalism is such a powerful articulation of that. Okay. All right, Ian, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thank you, Geraldine. That was Ian Tyrrell, Emeritus Professor of History at the University of New South Wales, and his book is American Exceptionalism, A New History of an Old Idea. It's a University of Chicago press publication. It's easier than ever to hear your favourite local and national ABC radio stations, live and on demand on the ABC Listen app.